My name is Jameson Chase Banks. I'm a Seneca, Cayuga, and Cherokee uh, citizen of Oklahoma, dual citizen. I'm also a professor of art at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. Um, I'm interested in primarily right now in like kind of multifacets of art. I really don't um, kind of just stick in one box, you know, like some, some things feel better being performed. Some things feel better being performed and photographed. Some things feel better being performed and filmed and then, you know, regurgitating it all later. And then maybe like peppering in prints or sculpture. It just kind of just depends on what the whole project feels like it needs. So, um, I kind of call it full spectrum work. That's what I've kind of come up with is that it hits you on a, on not just the, from the left and right, but like from under and on top and all sorts of different ways, the full spectrum uh, onslaught of information. When, um, when did you first like realize that you were interested in using art as that way of speaking about your experiences? Well, um, I, I grew up around artists. My grand, my maternal grandfather and my mother is an artist. So, I grew up in people's studios and, and, you know, I just got back from a talk in Phoenix where I did a lecture at a college and I was telling them, I actually thought that everybody had artists in their family. Like you just had, I just thought everybody had people that were creating things and doing creative things all the time. So I don't know that I've ever not thought I was an artist. I've always, there was times when I thought I wasn't an artist where I kind of like, um, maybe didn't feel it so much you know but I I always end up coming back to it because it's just really all I know I've been influenced by a lot of really special people and what kind of art was done in your home well my mom was kind of like into the whole engineering and draftsman aspect kind of like the pop art stuff where it's these exploded diagrams of things so she was doing oil paintings and acrylic paintings of um like tires and you know, like pop art kind of uh, consumerist information. Um, so that's what I was kind of surrounded by. And plus, you know, like all of her books that she used to study with. I remember being a child and looking through all these like art history books and drawing books and stuff like that. And those still really have an effect on my aesthetic. Those images in those books that just appealed to me, you know, like line drawings that were real simple. And then the portrait is like really refined. But the the arms and the shoulders and all the rest of the stuff is just gestural, you know? So those things really still um, influence the way I think, just those early memories of what art was or... Did you understand what she was um, conveying in her, like, con- concepts in her work? At that I age? don't really know that she even did, you know? So I certainly, I certainly didn't really key into that. I just knew that she was really talented. And if I, you know, liked something, I would go to her and I'd be like, hey, draw this for me, you know, and then she would attempt to do whatever it was that I was doing. And I just found that to be like miraculous, you know, that my mom could do something like that. And 
Um, as I got older, I started to realize, yeah, this is kind of a rare thing. It's not, you know, everybody does this. So um, I knew that it was special after after a while, you know. Was your mother the first person to like, um, like, like initiate you picking up a pen and drawing? Like, or I mean, you admired her, but was she the one who was like? I guess so. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if I had to nail somebody down, that would be she would be the one. I mean, I grew up in my grandfather's studio as well, but he lived in Texas. I grew up in Kansas at the really southern part of it, right next to the Oklahoma border. Um, and and we got we actually, I'll go into a little bit of history of my own stuff. We actually were kind of there because there's an Indian school called Chilaco. It was opened in the 1880s, and it actually closed down in 1982 when I was four. So my mom had worked there for a while. My grandmother and my grandfather both worked there as mentors and coaches and instructors. So I come from a line of people who have history in native mentorship, you know. Mm. Um, but that's the reasoning that we were there because this, this school was actually on the other side of the, <clears throat> in Oklahoma, on the other side of the state line. And it's really weird, like, um, because I'm starting to think about this type of stuff, like the boarding school. And, you know, I've always known about it in the past, but I was never quite prepared or never mature enough to really uh, look at those issues. And now that I'm a father and um, I can really kind of f confront those things, I'm uh, more well-rounded in my head that I can actually kind of digest some of those things and, and utilize them for, for conversation and art. Um, yeah, totally. And so was your grandfather um, a product of boarding school? Yeah, entirely. Yeah. So he was um, he was a product of it and my grandmother was too. Now, they didn't necessarily go to that Shilako school, but they had gone to Haskell and a couple of other places that were smaller. But then they ended up, um, like their brothers and sisters had gone to Shilako. So um, they ended up moving to where their older brothers and sisters were when they were younger. And um, they kind of helped them maneuver through the modern world. Because, see, all this stuff happened in, like, around the World War, World War II time. So... That's why I kind of use World War II in a lot of my works or kind of like approach war. My father was in Vietnam as well. So my family has been really um, affected by these conflicts or these climaxes of um, society. Have you had a chance or had you had a chance to speak to him about his experiences as a native person being enrolled or enlisted in, in war? Well, my grandfather who was the artist was too young to be in the war, but they, they moved away from the reservation and went into the war effort, like worked in factories okay. and stuff for, you know, like planes and all this type of stuff. So, but they learned all these types of new, um, trades and skills. And so after the war was over, they couldn't go back in their opinion, they couldn't go back to the reservation and not be able to utilize these skills. So they stayed in, in this little town that I'm actually that I'm actually from, and so that was the basis for us being in this little town next to Shilako in Kansas. uncle was in World War II and he you know so he was really there his older my grandfather's older brothers were like these champions of 
society um, because this guy, his name was Lucian. Uh, and I've done work about him that's been inspired by him. But he had like this crazy life because he was actually a Golden Glove boxer and was supposedly uh, the alternate. He wasn't the, the A squad, but he was the B squad to go to the 1936 Olympics. Hmm. And that was the Hitler Olympics, you know, with all this racial purity and stuff. And then it's like such a paradox that this Indian man goes to represent the United States. And then not only that, but he was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. And then he became like one of these special unit guys uh, called the Alamo Scouts. And it was kind of one of these precursors to the modern special forces. But the majority of these people that were in that group were Native Americans. And so they would go behind enemy lines and do all. It was just this really, really thick warrior code type stuff, you know. So that's another thing that I approach uh, pretty much every work I do is just kind of like approaching this this idea of a warrior code and and how that is kind of paradoxical in this society now that we live in, you know, but it's the only way to extinguish that warrior gene, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, you know? So that's really, it always comes back to those types of things because a lot of the men in my family have been in the service and, and not only in just the service, but in active conflicts where they've gone and, you know, had to, had to do horrible things. A lot of this stuff is a healing process for myself because growing up, my, my father had a lot of psychological trauma from being in the Vietnam conflict. So I know that the other men who were involved too that maybe came before also had that too, you know, to some extent. Um, it's all kind of wrapped up in political fervor and um, nationalism, really, you know. So I kind of always approach these themes um, by trying to dissect them or reevaluate them or somehow resurface them so that they appear to be different than what we're used to seeing over and over and over again. Yeah. And was there a, was there a breakthrough point with you where you realized that fusing art and this, this concept work was, um, was what you were going to do, like your, your calling or your meaning. Yeah, I guess so. Now looking back on it, you know, it was when I, I went to II in the nineties when it shared the campus with the college of Santa Fe. Um, and then I graduated and I moved to Seattle and I worked for Del Chihuly for a little while and kind of honed my skills. I worked at a screen printing shop and just kind of honed my own skills and became my own man. And then I moved back to Santa Fe and, um, I, I, I don't know if I kind of lost steam or what, but I, I just kind of like turned my back a little bit from art and I had my own painting business and it was pretty lucrative. So I was happy and, you know, I started a family and, but then after a while, there was really something that, you know, I needed, I needed more and it was just that art wasn't in my life anymore. Um, so I re-enrolled in IAI's BFA program and I got that done in like three semesters, um, but while I was there, I, I, there was a time when I was starting to learn about this um, this history about my Uncle Lucian at Pearl Harbor and how it really mirrored what the type of things I've always talked about with my own father about how, you know, Native American people join the military and then they um, you, you get indoctrinated into this new kind of ideology and it trains them to um, kill and do whatever they have to do. But... It's like I know for a fact that that type of trauma of killing someone 
is is it, it it hurts no matter who it is but having to kill somebody that looked like him um was i think really something that um he had a hard time dealing with so so the breakthrough moment was when i was i was learning about all this stuff and it's like wow this guy my uncle lucian he's my great uncle my grandfather's brother he had all these like really climactic moments in his in just one life you know and it's like it's rare if maybe even we have one climactic moment in our lives in this modern time, but he lived in a time when he, there was just so much going on. And I thought, you know, I really got to do something. And it's like paintings and prints it's, and photographs, it's all really great, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seal the deal in my eyes. It's, it's almost like I've always been a fan of film and I've always wanted to make film, but in the 90s, you couldn't make film like a kid. It cost too much money. There was so many logistics. Now that you have computers, it's just like go and shoot, sort it out, edit it, and, and it's gone to print. So I started thinking about what, what can I really talk about here? And so I started thinking, you know, um, there's so much climax around the atomic bomb. It's so loaded. I mean, there's just I mean, numerous angles you can approach it from. So I started thinking about maybe creating this idea of this Native American crew who actually has to bomb Japan, you know, and... Um, and the kind of paradox that that exists in that story. So I started thinking about, how can I do this? How can I kind of achieve this with film? And then I realized that down in Albuquerque, they had a B-29 Super Fortress plane at the Atomic Museum. And so I was like, well, I got to have that plane as like the main character, really, you know. So I went to all the logistics about asking people if that was cool. And um, I got approved to have that done. And then so then I just started assembling like, period style costume you know and I could only afford because I mean the things every film that I do is only about a thousand dollars of my own money that I throw I throw into it and and whatever kind of happened from that is is really what is produced so like maybe a thousand dollars because I paid a little bit to the museum um you know just donation but it was it was a good donation type thing mm -hmm. and then the costumes so that that it just kind of like started to develop from the plane being around the plane it, it again it's like this dance that I didn't quite know how to do but until you try to do the dance you won't know how to do it or how what, to even start What made you choose film for that like first big like Well I mean piece? I've been doing art for like 20 years um uh, you know maybe like the past 10 professionally and I, I just you know like I said I'm a lover of film so film's been something I've always wanted to be a part of. And it's, I think a lot of times when I talk about this, it's like for me, film, you know, you can look at a painting or a print and sculpture and stuff, but it's really rare that you're, you're caught off on an emotional, you're caught off guard emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, but with film, it's like the monkey looking into the mirror kind of thing. You can, the monkey reacts to itself. So that's the metaphor, really, of film, is that you see yourself in these characters. That's why you empathize with them and care for them so much. And the story becomes pivotal in your own life mm. because um, you can identify with that. And, you, and it makes you cry or it makes you laugh, you know. And it's really, it's really, you can get lost very quickly in a, in a film as opposed to the painting, which needs kind of like some sort of basis or foundation or explanation Whereas a film, you can just jump right into. I mean, especially Americans, this is our um, forte, you know. I mean, we have everything there is that's big about film is here. 
So we're um, raised to digest this information. You know, I mean, it's already, it's encoded in us to be able to de decipher these types of things really readily. You know, I mean, we're bombarded with commercialism all the time. And so that's what I really wanted to start using was more of a commercial pipeline, I guess you could call it, you know, mm -hmm. where um, I'm just using the channels that are already in place, you know, and it's, um, it, again, it goes back to that full spectrum kind of thing. It feels much more full spectrum because, um, you know, like your paintings and stuff, they exist on a wall for a temporary time and then they get bought and they're coffee table conversations or whatever in these small circles. But film is something that, that we all experience individually but we communicate about it collectively. That's rarely done about art in that arena because, I mean, now, especially with the computer, we can put the film up on a website and people all around the world can look at it anytime they want, you know, anytime in their life. So totally. it could be like the day it's released or it could be 20 years from now when I have no idea who's going to see it. But they're like, it, it matters to them enough that they need to respond to it. You know? Plus the process of filmmaking for the artist, for the individual, and somebody like you who, I mean, I've noticed you like act as a character and you're like directing and producing and going into all of those different layers. Like explain that process and how that feels. It's overwhelming at times, you know, because you feel like a ringleader and, um, <laughs> but you, in order to keep, you know, to remain loyal to this project, you know, it's kind of like. The first process is the hardest now that I'm doing this. It's kind of like, all right, I have a lot of things I still need to say. But it's kind of like, how can I um, maintain a level of enthusiasm with the people that I choose to do this? It's a very diplomatic decision-making kind of thing. So um, there's a lot of things that are weighed on. Um, and, you know, even when I'm making projects, sometimes they just fall, um, they kind of just fall down. Like some people have things going on in their lives and we have to stop for a while and it may just end. The energy may not ever get built back up again. Or in then other times, if we're really enthusiastic about it, it's real collaborative, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a real collaboration. And so how did, how does that affect? you like emotionally as an artist when something doesn't get completed like a film i think anymore because i've done it like you know i think maybe like out of every five films two of them two of the so it's like almost a third of the stuff doesn't get made i think that's just part of the process and it's not that it's like personal or anything some things just happen and films are really hard to kind of like get done mm -hmm. um the way you want it to, you know, it's, it's, um, it's trying at times, but I don't take it personally. Like, Oh, it's, it's the end. It's kind of like film is what's really cool about film is that it's a, it, it's a record. Like once it's done, once it's shot, it's done. Like as long as you don't corrupt it or you lose it somehow, like it's solid, you know, and you could, garnish that into the story somehow that we've come back to this story two years later or something everybody looks different older or whatever mm -hmm. and that's just even better almost you know what i mean so it's like i don't take any it's just like a painting i guess you know i i work on paintings and prints and sometimes and they just fall apart it's not personal it's just shit just didn't happen right that time <laughs> and uh so you got to walk away from it and then it's like a conversation really i tell my students i'm like this is a conversation that you're having with the material to convey a message to people. And sometimes 
it's just like in real life when you have a fallout with a friend or a family member or whatever and you guys don't talk for a while but then sooner or later you just you're like oh man that that was foolish and you get back around to talking again it's the same way when you don't you can't complete a piece you know it's like you just weren't the conversation the chemistry just wasn't working and then you know you get over it and you can come back to it and it's it's again it's kind of that healing process but allowing that healing process to actually work itself out instead of being you know force it's just like you can't force art kind of like where in the beginning there was a void you know there was nothing over here about this topic there's nothing I have fulfilled a little bit of that void and now it's something whereas it wasn't before that people can look at now 20 years 100 years hopefully from now and respond to that in their own way and that that just becomes part of the larger conversation that's really all I all I intend to do is just become part of this larger conversation because it's Life is so temporary, you know, and and film is so recording. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like as long as it doesn't get lost or destroyed, I mean, my grandchildren can watch me. And I think that's really, you know, I think a lot about the future. I don't necessarily think about my audience now. I mean, I respect them and everything, but I think more about the um, long lasting effect of this work as opposed to it being like it fills this niche that needs to be filled right now because it's such a consumerist society. What is that niche? Um, it's just like a nostalgia, you know, or like a um, shadow box, you know. I grew up uh, with a sh My mom had a shadow box, and the shadow box had all these, like, little trinkets of history and family, and mm -hmm. it's like photographs and little objects, you know, just of importance, like rocks and, you know, all sorts of stuff that you like to look at. And so that's really all it is, is it's a shadow box. It's just a, it's just a place that has curiosities and, and all these objects have stories, you know, all these little things have stories. And so at some point I hope to just have like a big shadow box of stories, you know, that, that is my legacy, you know, that's, that's really what I cool. leave. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's really cool. And so what do you, what do you think is your, um, your most excited way to show that in your art are you like film is film is what's like really driving you well right it's now? like i said you know it really um i mean film's expensive too you know yeah. so that's the major thing is like it's finding the um resource for that stuff and it happens but it's just a matter of me like again back to the ringleader thing it's like all right do i really want to I mean, if for lack of a better word, attack this territory, you know what I mean? And put all my resources into attacking that. And then like, I don't know, maybe like, um, you know, um, overcoming it somehow. And then it's done. It's like, then I move on to more territory. So mm -hmm. it just depends on what the type of, for lack of a better word, like what type of weapons I need to do that. Yeah. You know, um, some weapons work better for some things and some weapons work better for other things. So it just it's it just depends on 
first, I mean, maybe not first, but along with the weapons is like how much of money do I have to play with? So it's it's a matter of financial resource plus Which is another arsenal. weapon nowadays, it seems It like. totally is. It totally is. And I mean, it's when it comes to that, it, you start talking about allies. I think it's just, it's really complex. I don't know that I ever have a stance. Things change so much in this society. It's hard to have any foundation necessarily. I mean, we have drones. That's an issue I kind of address in territories. Mm. Uh, another issue I kind of address is how Native Americans were um, involved in the Civil War. And, you know, in a, in a strange way, I kind of think that Cibola, this Western that I talk about, um, you know, it's like melting a Native American with the Confederate forces, which is actually another part of my ancestry. I found when I had my son, I really, really re wanted to know every facet of my genealogy. So I went and I studied and I contacted all sorts of people. And I, I did this really elaborate tree, like going all the way back to the 1600s in some parts. So in that, I was able to like find stories. And one of the stories was of my six time great grandfather who was on the Trail of Tears as a young boy, ended up getting wrangled into the Civil War on the Confederate side. And as, as horrible as that sounds, it didn't have anything to do with slavery. It was all about blood feuds and, and tribal uh, fighting. Mm -hmm. So, um, But, but on a, on a kind of like metaphoric end, that was talking about how the Native American plight and the Confederate plight were these kind of lost causes, mm -hmm. you know, so... You know, I touch on these things, but it's always, it always comes back to that. If we, it, it kind of all talks about identity, you know, and how how um, mixed up Native American identity really is, you know, and how I don't know that um, we could ever like put out something that people will actually understand because we're so diverse that we don't even understand ourselves, you know. So it's like it's a paradox. Um, I use that so much, that word, because it really is. It's such a paradoxical uh, existence to be Native American in the 21st century. And... What does that What does that word mean to you, Native American? Well, um, I think that means, you know, I mean, it could mean a couple of different things, but to me, it, it means that your ancestors were original inhabitants of the North American continent. Um, so, I mean, in a real generic clinical way, that's what it means to me. But it, you know, I mean, it's so, everything's tied up so much in labels that it's hard to, um, you know, I mean, what's what's Indian mean, too? It's like, you know, I mean, that's the paradox right there is that mm -hmm. it's kind of like, well, you want to be modern, but people only know us as these kind of like uh, antiquated images that um, if we don't fit into that, it's this weird kind of um, twilight zone that we enter, you know. Yeah. on a daily basis <laughs> and that's what you address in your films yeah I mean, they're like these like that's absurd realities yeah. but at the same time it's, it's real totally possible and plausible right it's real like i mean that's the thing i think as native american people we have so much so much problems because we do live in you know two or three or four different worlds um and that's really challenging. <laughs> it's mentally challenging. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like you're doing that in your art, too, as a way to, like, adjust all these different perspectives. You, you're, you're switching from, like, 
printmaking to film to painting and um i'm sure you do a lot of other things too right yeah i dabble in everything i mean it's like i said it goes back to that dance and even sometimes if i just see if i saw something tomorrow that made me inspired to do i would try to do it just because that's the human experience for me is to try to do something to convey something else you know it just feels right really gives me satisfaction I guess do you collaborate with other artists other than on the films like um I guess not so much really yeah mostly it's just the films but then it's like the films um you know things work into you know like if I did prints I would I would get some of my printmaker friends if they're in the movie work with me on designing some of the prints or something like that but the majority of the collaboration work is always uh, putting these productions together. I don't have like a set uh, script. I never work with scripts. I just work with like, it's the image for me. It's I see it um, and I need to get these people together and in these costumes in this place. And then that's it for me. And then I let them, I tell them, I'm like, you know, when I came to you and we were developing this thing, you're that person more than I am, you know what I mean? And you're going to make this person who it is. So what you bring to the table is what we're going to use. And that's the best part of it too, is because I just let go. It's not like I'm a control freak and want these things done a certain way. There is certain things I want done, but once I get those things done, it's like, then it's all just cake and, and people enjoy escape. Mm-hmm. You know, people enjoy being able to be someone else for a little while and really just living it. And so the majority of these people, nearly all of them are artists. So I trust wholeheartedly that they're going to, they know how things look. They're masters at looking. So I trust that whatever they decide to do is perfect. And again, it goes back to this record thing. It's like the people I have in my movies are people I actually love and, and adore so that I want, you know, it's like Native American people have been absent from film. And so when I see them move in, in films and stuff after we've shot it, and it's real magic to see these. It's like an anthropological kind of thing. It's it's like being able to see people that look like me just in life, you know, just moving. That's enough for me. That's the beautiful part to me is because then it's recorded. My friends become my art. And it's like that's I couldn't paint a picture or do anything with my hands that would be more beautiful than they are just as they are. really satisfying because in the end it's like it's kind of orgasmic to be honest you know Mm -hmm. it's like um um and there's always kind of a melancholy that happens when it's all over you know it's almost like a love affair at the beginning it's just really bubbly and everybody's just crazy you know and then it, it like kind of matures and it gets easier and the dance gets more familiar and people calm down and um and then it's over and it's like damn you know like there's this whole world that we just left and people you know even i i desire that i mean i think 
that word in particular is so important to art. It's like creating desire. That's really all art, artists do is they're trying to create some sort of desire or fill a psychological conversation that needs to get out. But that's also desire. It's, it's a desire for that conversation, you know. So there's so many different ways about talking about desire for what artists do, you know. It's the desire to understand or the desire to research something or the desire to just look, you know, in its really simplest terms. That's that's what makes art so different from everything else is that that's all you have to do is just look at it, you know. Yeah. What's been the reception from like your peers and like places that you've been showing these works? Well, um, I guess it's a bit mixed because, you know, there is, like you said, it's that heavy. Some of this stuff's very heavy, but it's also kind of very poignant. So it's more poetic than just hitting you on the head with this information that's real didactic, you know. Mm. It's it's the finesse of the conversation. Um, and I think that's the hook is that it's it appeals on a consumer level. Everything's already digestible. It's I deliver it to you just how you get all the rest of the stuff. So it's readily digestible, but it might be you might be affronted when you kind of learn what it's actually kind of dealing with. But I think there's always something in people who, who even are offended. There's something very attractive about being challenged um, on on all sorts of levels. Why would somebody be offended? Like, can you give me an example? Well, I mean, just talking about Native American history to Americans mm. is very <laughs> is very uncomfortable, <laughs> and that's just I mean, how much more basic can it get yeah, for right. a Native American? You know, so I mean, just right off the bat, with that type of uh, logistical problem, um, you know, and it just kind of like it it just it it branches off from that, so. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. People have their integrity tied up in being American and what that means. And um, seems like pushing that comfort level is almost like a positive thing. It's almost like it's a absolutely a positive thing. I mean, it's like you know, NASA building the rockets. It's trial and error. Mm -hmm. It there has to be error in the trial, otherwise, you know, nothing's perfect. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe I'm not trying for perfection, but. I'm just trying to, again, be a part of a larger conversation that has a history of people that are long gone and a, and, and a future of people that aren't even here. You know, so I just I really just try to remain in the big picture and contribute. That's really what I'm trying to do is just contribute. And what does it feel like um, wearing like that? soldier regalia and stuff like personally like when you see a lot of like native imagery that's appropriated right now like regalia and you're almost like turning that conversation around like is that intentional and how does that feel to you it's totally intentional um but a lot of that the soldier stuff has it's a psychological response to my own father mm -hmm. and how boys emulate their fathers it's cowboy and indians is playing soldier i played soldier when i was a child because i knew my father was a soldier mm -hmm. in a lot of ways i think he groomed me to become a, a soldier and officer but when the time came i just it just wasn't for me i was more of a creative person and um it just wasn't a road that I really thought I should travel. Mm. But not to say that I don't respect that type of code or um, that type of discipline and allegiance. It just wasn't for me. But, you know, it's it, again, it goes back to the catharsis of it. When putting on that uniform, it, it cleanses me in a way mm. um, somehow, you know, because I'm breaking through some sort of um, inner barrier 
that um i mean all the costumes every costume that i wear helps to break down some sort of inner barrier inner awareness that i can let go of and it gives me a little bit of freedom to to express how i think those people are Mm. the the costume actually allows me to be that more than anything because i don't use the script you know it's just like i don't know it's just informed by photographs or films or something or hearsay secondhand knowledge of of what i think these people are but a lot of my films don't use dialogue too because i feel like dialogue takes you into a really known place Mm -hmm. it starts to define things for you when i don't want to nail things down in my films i want to keep them pretty ambiguous and mysterious and um you know i feel like there's so much with the internet like it's called the information age so you know everything you know, so there's not a whole lot of mystery left in the world, or at least it seems like there isn't. And that's what I have nostalgia for, too, is like the, not necessarily unknown, but just the stuff you can't put your finger on that you may know about, but it's murky and it's still um, interesting because of that. You know what I mean? The kind of the illusion that there's something more that you have to read into. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. been the um the favorite of yours personally that you've worked on as far as films go oh wow of my own yeah um like what was the biggest growth um for you as an artist well i mean it's hard to say i i really like territories and i really like cibola too because they were both um different kind of um emotions like with the territories it was really dealing with my father and the inequalities of the world and drones and stuff like that. But Cibola is also my favorite because it was my biggest production. I had the most people working on it and probably the most money tied up in it too. Um, and it won at Swaya last year. So it kind of like reaffirmed that it was worthy of seeing or worthy of being shown. Can you give us like a, a basic little kind of plot rundown for people who might not have seen it? Yeah, yeah. So Cibola is a tale of um, a brother who has been wrangled into the Confederate side of the war um, in the in the East. And he is a deserter. He becomes a deserter. And he goes to New Mexico before it was a state, the territory, to come out here to find, like, riches. Because about that time, they were, um, they discovered gold in the Ortiz Mountains. And so I'm trying to kind of link histories uh, based on actual events. So the thing is, is that his brother is on the other side, on the Union side, and gets injured, who's played by Frank Buffalo Hyde. Um, So as cliche as it sounds with these two brothers in the Civil War fighting kind of against each other, but not really, um, I was just really, I really wanted to pay homage to my grandfather and father who love Westerns. I don't, I don't particularly like Westerns. But I felt like Santa Fe and New Mexico is such a Western, just like I felt it was just another character just waiting to be used, you know. So (laughs) New Mexico kind of became another big character in a sense. I mean, it's kind of interesting because I think the Big Bad Wolf, that's the B-29 story. I named the plane that. 
that becomes a big character. In Cibola, the nature becomes a big character. And in Territories, the drone becomes a character. So it's like these things that aren't necessarily... There's innate objects or landscapes that become characters. But that's really kind of the rundown, is it's just the, it's a story of two brothers. Uh, one's a traitor, a deserter, and the other one is actually going to find his brother. You know, And I wanted to keep it open to being like... Well, is this brother going to kill the other brother? Or what, mm. What's going on? You know, I wanted to keep it kind of foreboding, you know. But in the end, um, you know, it has a lot to do with death and the, the death of hope um, and kind of the loss of innocence in a sense too. But also about greed, mm. you know, um, the seeking of gold, the seeking of riches, the seeking of um, that feeling of, of um, achievement or something like that. And... So in the end, my character dies, um, but he gives his gold to his brother, kind of like in spirit. Mm. But it's almost like, I mean, that's the only positive note, because I think even he, the brother who lives, might not make it out once the story ends. It's a very tragic kind of tell, but that's only a reflection of Native American. The reality yeah. of being Native American is full of tragedy. Um, and it's something that, you know... Not a lot of people like to look at, but it's. Um, I think it's a it's a way for us to get people to have an emotive response to our story, as opposed to it being like Dancers with Wolves and then the typical kind of uh, white man story. How Indians fit into this story? I wanted it to be a story about Native Americans who have white people and other colored people involved in their story but it's their story. It's not an offshoot of how we fit into their stories. And it's really refreshing because it's, you're telling a story that is, um, it's not about how Indian are you, or it's not based on the fact that you're Native American. It's based on the fact that you're human. Right, right. And that's, that's really freaking rare right now. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I think it's just our shared experience and how we've, um, you know, it really has a lot to do with like uh, eugenics, you know, I mean, that mm -hmm. stuff that you're talking about. And that was stuff that Nazis used, you know. And so they learned, the Nazis learned how to treat people by how the U.S. government had treated us by not only assimilating us and executing us, but also um, the blood quantum type thing. That's all that's all meant to kind of like um at sooner sooner or later bleed out a tribe you know like it's just a weird kind of scientific experiment that um dehumanizes people you know yeah. and that's something that's you know it's open territory to talk about too but it's a lot of these things are taboo and so it's a matter of like when is the right time to talk about these things you know so it's an it's another finesse dance kind of thing you know like When's the right climate to go skiing? You know, yeah. you can't go skiing all the time. You got to <laughs> do things when the time is right, you know. Wait for the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's it's like these things affect people. It's not taboo. We should really talk about it because it, it affects people, you know. Like, that's what I don't shy away from because if it hurts your feelings, well... If you don't talk about it, it probably hurt your feelings even more, you know? <laughs> yeah, it'll probably eat you up. <laughs> yeah, straight up. Straight up. And it feels like it feels like right now the, the season is changing. Like the conversation in like your generation of artists is opening wider and wider to allow allow this to happen. Like yeah. whether or not 
other people might want to hear it. You guys are speaking, and how does it? How does that feel? Do you see that with your peers? Yeah, definitely. I think you know Santa Fe is just such a rare place. You know, it's like we all know of each other, and we know we're all working, and it's all kind of like in the same direction. You know, um, it's like a big, big, broad front that we're moving towards, um, and everybody's just you know hammering on the wall, just doing their own little part. And it may be minor in some places, it may be major catastrophes in others, but it's like we're all breaking down some sort of barriers that exist to um, enclose us and to keep us separate from one another. So I really feel fortunate to be alive in this time and to be able to um, express myself with other like-minded people and work with them. You know, I mean, it's really, really refreshing and I think it's just a reflection of society. Like we're in such a dark age, you know, um, everything seems to be doom and gloom when, you know, all these changes. So people are actually looking to us to find that hope or to find that light, you know, and it's not like we have any answers, but we certainly are going to keep dancing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> We're going to just keep dancing and keep trying. It's pretty ironic in the age of like the internet and all this connection. Like we're just realizing how fucked up we've made the earth and the world and like our interpersonal communication. I think you're right. You know, and, and maybe it took having a global perspective as opposed to it being like in the Cold War when we were growing up and it was just like only a one-way thinking, only a one-way street. But now it's like all the channels are open. There's so many channels that you can't even look at all of them. It took having this larger perspective of everyone to, f to realize, hey, we are actually connected. It took us being connected to realize we're connected. <laughs> yeah, right? As simple as that sounds. I mean, it's, there's metaphor in everything. It really is. point for um the next step of your like art career will be towards like um speaking about something what's your next what's your next topic what are you I don't know in? I mean I'm really hung up on the whole conflict thing like um it's just something that I kind of dwell on it's almost like an obsessive compulsive disorder um it's just issues that I've never been able to quite swallow you know like dealing with knowing that your your ancestor was uh, had to kill you know it's like I dealt with it as a child and I've never been able to jump that hurdle so it's something that I constantly kind of address from different angles in each piece um, I am working on a love story that I wanted to do um, but it, it it's all foundations on World War II so I like using kind of like these cliched modes, you know, like Casablanca kind of thing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, it's 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 pretty to look at also. It's important to talk about, but it's also, I want it to be attractive. You know, I want it to be like something that you would enjoy looking at. And then there's other things that I do that aren't pretty. They're, they're not nice to look at. Like what's an example? Well, um, you know, I'm... I'm I'm kind of like dissecting the whole idea of um, crime, but 
war crime and how um, I'm working on, I'm working, I, I usually work on like about three or four projects all at once. I don't know why that is. It just happens. And I can kind of like shift gears pretty easily and get into another mode. But I'm working on an idea of this um, this crew that was captured in North Korean waters in the 60s, like right around the time the Vietnam War started. And ironically, this, this ship is called the USS Pueblo. So, I mean, I'm, I'm also dealing with that type of stuff too, how like all these military machines are named after tribes and how like that's a real kind of something interesting to talk about too. But this is the only ship that's still in enemy hands. And so I actually call this whole project Mayday, 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 a water boarding school experience. Whoa. Yeah, so I'm trying to kind of tie in how the North Korean ideology is really just a Christian overlay. You know, I mean, these people, they are devout to their great leader and the sun. And so it, it becomes a reflection of religion. And then so I'm, I peppered in with the boarding school experience because that was still... You know, like as with the North Koreans, there's patterns. North Korean has this military indoctrination ideology. And that was the same way it was with the boarding school, you know. And so I'm talking about torture because they're the same thing, you yeah. know. And I'm tying these two subjects together to um, stress the point that the great leader is no different than God, kind of, you know. And it's so my main my main thing about talking about that was is it. it for a Native American person, it's as absurd to follow a Western mode of ideology as it is to follow an Eastern mode of ideology. Mm -hmm. It's as silly as me signing up to join the great leader as it is to bow down to Christ and the whole paradigm there. You know, it's just, they're equally as absurd to me. Um, and that hurts people's feelings. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to not say it because I'm afraid of what somebody thinks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's an, it's a, it's, I'm not alone in my thinking, you know, and I think just having the, uh, the gumption to just say it in a way that's not actually saying it again is back to the poignant kind of finesse of the dance. Well, that's the beauty of being the artist. Right, right, right. Is pick and choose. You, you pick the palette and you right. know what color it, it really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes along with a lot of dialogue. I mean, and even, you know, because this will be a film too. We've already shot like half of it. Oh, wow. But I I like to be patient and, and wait for the seasons. So we shot everything when it was deep snow. And then just like with Cibola, I shot a lot of stuff in the summer. And then we peppered it in with some snow and stuff. So there there is an element of, of element involved. Um, and you have to be patient for that type of stuff to be just right and for the conditions to be just right to get it done. You know, so we're going to be filming some of this stuff in the summer. In these waiting moments, does it like allow you to think and like shift your process? And like, do you find yourself changing a little bit? of? Oh, your yeah, story? definitely. It, it definitely. But that one in particular hasn't changed. And I think it was because all the information was this there to begin with. And I'm, I'm using a Bigfoot in this thing. And the Bigfoot represents the idea of something that we think we know, but we know better maybe that it's not there. Mm. So that's the idea of spirit, this spirituality that's forced on you, you know. So I use the Bigfoot as this kind of metaphor for that, for that misunderstanding or that misstance. Mm. Um, so the Bigfoot becomes a pivotal character 
in all this stuff, but it was also like a kind of an offshoot to how in the middle of North and South Korea, there's this dividing line and it's like two kilometers. They call it no man's land. So it's cutting through the whole peninsula. It's just two kilometers through the whole peninsula. Just like you could walk if it wasn't mined, you know, but, but birds have actually come back to this area. Like it's become a, uh, what do you call them? Like a wildlife preserve, but it's not really because it's not not about them. <laughs> it's mined and stuff. Accidental. But so yeah, but it cuts through like this. This place cuts through mountains, cuts through beaches, all sorts of different kinds of land. And I thought it would be interesting because it's the forty. I think it's the forty ninth parallel, forty ninth or forty eighth. Can't remember exactly, but that's kind of the dividing line. And I thought it'd be interesting to have like this yeti. Uh, preservation area and that's where like he's come back you know because there's nobody there and it's just absurd that's, that's but it's beautiful. yeah I mean it's just absurd and that's like the hook too is it's kind of like all these things that you know something's surface like Bigfoot has become this thing in the past five years or you know what I mean it's just these ebbs and flows of of um fads and so I I was like man that's perfect you know and my buddy he that I work with a lot Dan Greon he's like seven foot tall and he had a he had a chewbacca outfit so um he was perfect for the bigfoot and so <laughs> i amazing. we did this like whole thing where i was a north korean like border guard and i actually escape you know it kind of made me think about all these east germans back when we were kids who would like flee they were soldiers but they would actually flee their own country you know they were supposed to be watching the border but they would leave so i'm that kind of guy in north korea but i get the help of the yeti but then it starts to become like this thing like han solo and chewbacca kind of thing you know like there's all these patterns that just show up and um we kind of act out on some of them just to play with themes that being american you know about you know yeah like subtleties <laughs> it makes it fun you know it makes it it's just more code it's like code on top of code that's is really what it is, yeah. What's the process of the filming? Um, I mean, do you guys have somebody who's your cameraman, or are you guys just switching back and forth? Like, um, A lot of times, Daniel does a, the filming, but if he's involved in the filming, I have another friend named Achota Killsnight, and he's studying film at IIA, and um, I've worked on several projects with him too. So we have a certain a crew of people that we just we, we know how to dance together now, you know, and it's like we kind of know... Before, it's kind of like a football game, and we get together, and we, like, draw maps or whatever and make plans. And then when we get in the field, some of that stuff falls by the wayside or some of it, you know, like, I'll have told them my plans. And then when I get there, I'm kind of concentrated in being the person and just being in that world and not really trying to pay attention that they're filming. You know, I just try to act like it's no one's around and I'm this person, you know. And I'll, I'll, we'll get done with whatever I wanted to do, you know, and I'll, I'll think, I think we're done, you know, and, and, but then what's great about having a trusted crew is that they'll be like, no, you also said this too. Um. And I also want to do this. So we end up shooting heaps of stuff. Some of it doesn't work, but we got to go down that road to know it's a dead end and go yeah. down another road, you know, but it's the freedom to have that expressive uh, capability that's really refreshing because like I said, I trust these people. They're artists. They know what looks good. And if, if they think it looks good, well then it's probably going to look good. And, and I, you know, I've really been lucky. Maybe I just really understand film, um, cadence and dialogue and that, or, you know, not dialogue, but movement. 
because it's really very easy once I have all the footage, I mean, I can cut through it really quickly, like within a day or two. Wow. To, it's just like a comic book or something. Like, I, I have all the components. I just have to plug them in and make it all seamless and feel good. You know, not like... when It's back to the dance. It's yeah. like when dancing and if you hear a beat go off, it's like it screws the dance up. So you have to make sure that the dance goes smooth and people feel comfortable, I guess. Right. You know? Yeah. And have you ever... I mean, you've gone to art school. No, I've never had any you've film never class. Yeah, never <laughs> one. Yeah, but like I said, you know, I mean, I'm a, I study, I've studied film my whole life in a sense. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I'm American. Yeah, that's by We're, default. <laughs> totally. Like going to the movies is something that we we just do. I mean, that's really American. never had film training and you're making movies what kind of advice do you have to like artists who are maybe wanting to create something but are afraid and feel like they have to go through some systematic experience in order to get there like you just don't there's no rules anymore you know like if you have it in you you have it in you you know if you have a story that needs to be told do it and and let the cards fall where they can you know later just um just just do it that's the bottom line you just got to do it yeah and if you like it you'll know and if you don't like it you'll know so <laughs> you can't really lose you know i mean that's a metaphor for life it's well, like what happens when you don't like it like you said like a lot um, of stuff fails like what? you just you regroup you know you're like well what is it about this that i do like what is it that i can use and then what is it that I don't like? And you just learn from it. You know, it's not like it's, again, it's not personal or anything. It's just, it's the pattern, you know, it's the pattern of creating something. You you break some eggs, you know, yeah. along the way of making a great <laughs> omelet, I guess, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're teaching at IAIA. Um, is that like, is that kind of what you tell your students? I mean, I know that printmaking is a very like metered process yeah but you know i bring to the table that that my particular type of printmaking screen printing is the most versatile form of printmaking i don't need a press but i can print on any flat surface you mm. can't do that with all the other printmaking so i mean that's kind of a metaphor in itself too you know it's like i can print on any surface and i encourage you to do that too and you may not know what surface it is until you just do it you know i mean you got to do it like printing on fur or printing on the carpet, or printing on a block of concrete, or printing on your back, you know, like you just got to do it. And then you'll see, oh, well, that re required too much logistics. It just doesn't work. Well, you now know. <laughs> and if you didn't know, well, you'd be, it'd just be a mystery. And then it could be the biggest thing ever. You just got to do it, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. And that's really what art is. Art isn't this like clinical checklist of things you got to do it's like man that i don't know where that shit came up but that's crazy you know what i mean yeah it, <laughs> it seems like i mean in art school and all of this stuff there's like this misconception that there are like steps to follow right and it seems like most artists i talk to are like fuck that you right know? totally that it's not it's not the case so well i think there's a whole you know it's like business art school is a business so there's a there's a level there's a layer of competition involved there mm. but i don't um i don't compete with anybody else i compete with myself mm. so that it 
it may it, I maintain challenging myself and um you know it just feels a lot better that way how do you show your work well i i show it on a you know a couple of different places i i show it on vimeo or youtube or stuff like that but then it's shown in theaters as well you know that's happened um you know i show i show my like installation work i have a thing coming up at site santa fe the biennial mm -hmm. so that'll be an installation a when commission is, when is commission. that coming up um i think it's in like the weekend of july 19th maybe the 16th through the 20th okay right around there sometime but that's all installation work so i show you know i show stuff like that in 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 spaces just depends on what audience i really want to see it you know because the films aren't really necessarily meant to be taken as films you know i don't have credits and stuff on them they're not like these things that go to film festivals and buy for attention that way they're just meant to be reflections uh moving paintings if you will how you know? how long are they generally um well cibola was the longest at like 12 minutes and um the other ones are anywhere from like two to five minutes long wow so just really short yeah they're speak. really short and I, I mean that's really a response to the microwave generation as well it's like i i for one don't have the resource to do that but also i just feel like people's attention spans are really short nowadays you know what i mean and so to get a point across really quickly is the same thing as if i drew it out for like two hours you know it's like <laughs> two hours is almost like too much time anymore for even a film lover who grew up watching two-hour movies it's like well that could have been taken out and that could have been taken out and that could have, because it's just not really that important to really be engulfed in a story to to care about a character you don't need that much time to develop kind of an affair it seems like you're coming at it from almost like a comic book style approach like what you said um with your editing and that's that's really nice that's really clean and it's really simple and it's to the point and it will uh, reach a wider audience you know yeah i mean comic books are already storyboards so really that's all i do is i make storyboards yeah. because again like i said it comes back to the image i have an idea of what i want to see set it's in concrete i need to see that and maybe that doesn't work but something will develop from those people interacting i'll i'll get it something will happen you know what i mean <laughs> i've been lucky thank god that it always works out but it's again it's just like the magic of being artists we we want to do this stuff there's a desire already to create these kind of invented environments that's really playful and childish you know i mean i think that's a big part of it is it kind of brings back this imaginary pretend world that we all existed in at one time and i think that's a safe place do you think having a you have a son do you think having a child has reminded you of that absolutely space? <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely i mean it it takes me back to being a child when i see him do things you know it's like hearing a song that takes you back to when you were younger. It's the same thing for motions with me. Like I'll see him do something and it'll make me think of this visceral experience I had with sand or mm -hmm. something, you know, like sand in my teeth or something like that. You know, it's like these visceral experiences that you can't ever really forget. They're like psychological imprints. And so those things start to um, really affect my thinking big time. Just like let you go a little bit deeper into a place. Yeah, yeah. And it's also kind of like those visceral experiences are rarely 
talked about. And I think they're really um, important. You know, I think there's something that we kind of just take for granted anymore. Um, but they're really, it's like being an animal. Yeah. It reminds you that you're an animal, you know, and that we're a part of this world. Yeah. And that learning through play, you know, like that's, that was our first tool was play. And it, it seems like acting and being in these films is like learning. Again. No, you absolutely said it. I've never really thought about it like that, but that's totally what it is. And seeing my son do that too is just. It's like maybe I'm emulating him in some way, you know what I mean? While yeah. I'm trying to pay homage to the people who've come in the past. So it's, it, it, you know, adds even more to the idea of the full spectrum work, you know? Yeah, a yeah. huge circle. <laughs> totally, totally. We're all connected. What do you want to say to the world? What's... Um, I mean, I guess if I'm talking about my art, I just really want, um, you know, if people see it, I want them to just um, feel something, you know, feel feel something that they might not have felt before so it's like I really just want to fill a void um not nothing that I could actually tell them but that um I think through my work that's the things I say in my work is what I'm trying to sh my shout into the void <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I think um you know just if I could say one thing to people it's just like be 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 kind to one another mm. be good and um express yourself and and hope hopefully we can contribute to a better world you know each each person just trying to do a little bit better than before the day before you know that's all we can hope for i guess <laughs>